Uh, we started off on Thursday evening with a look at inspiration, and that itself is a tool to understand Scripture. If we don't believe that the Bible is every word the Word of God, if we emphasize it, ah, yes, but isn't it also, you know, the thoughts of the writers, aren't they also authors themselves? Doesn't their personality get stamped on the, on, on the Scriptures? Don't we have to take into account who they were? where they came from, what their background was, what people thought at the time, and all those things. Some of those things might be relevant, but if we start to emphasize that and move away from what we have always called in the Brotherhood the verbal inspiration of Scripture, plenary inspiration, every word is what God wants it to be, and that's really the bottom line. Now, what Isaiah wrote isn't what Isaiah wanted to write, but what God wanted Isaiah to write it may include aspects of Isaiah himself, but that really isn't what's determining what's going on. What's determining what's going on is, is that God has called Isaiah, prepared Isaiah, spoken through Isaiah, and that's what we believe. Then we can link Scripture together in a way that wouldn't be possible without that doctrinal basis. So I stress that because it is, is our foundation. Without that foundation, if we don't think of the Word of God as is described by the Scriptures themselves, that all Scripture is God-breathed, then we're not really going to give it the respect and attention that it needs to have. When we look at those structures, we will, God willing, we will do some more today, okay? It's, uh, we can't, if we are reading Scripture, we can't just you know, look at one aspect. If we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, we've got to look at all aspects, really, haven't we? Uh, and try and open it up. And I'm sharing what I've discovered. That's the whole point of being invited. So that's, that's what I'm doing. Other brethren will share other points. Uh, you know, we're not saying you must follow what I'm saying. I'm saying this is what I found helpful. This is what I found uh, wonderfully exciting. You must apply your minds to the scriptures and see uh, what you think. So, three things. Inspiration, verbal inspiration. That, well, I say it like that, but actually it's like that. It's the foundation, okay? It's the foundation. Now, we're going to build, there's two pillars. <laughs> One is the structure of the scriptures, and the other are the connections between passages of scripture. What I want to move on today then is this idea represented in three words, quotations, allusions, and echoes. What do they mean to us? Anybody want to offer a definition of quotation? And so usually when we say quotation, we mean that the words, you know, not just one or two, but a block of a sentence or a paragraph from one part of scripture is reproduced in another place. And so quotations are often, or we recognize them because they're introduced by a very clear statement that what follows is what is written elsewhere. It is written, or as saith the scriptures, or as David in spirit said. And we instantly know that we're to go back to that psalm and hear what the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to. There's a little issue that comes up in 
of such references is that they're not exactly word for word. And then we have to decide what's going on. So that's one of the sessions, uh, I think it's the next formal session, uh, is down on, on the program anyway, to address that question. Because that, if we sort of get that wrong, we can get tangled up in all sorts of uh, complications. So, but the concept of quotation is straightforward. What would you mean by an allusion then, Ryan? I think you made that distinction already, really, between a reference, but it's not, it's not uh, a full-on reproduction of a passage. So an allusion would be that uh, a writer, we just use this in, in secular things, that a writer is, we say, alluding to an earlier writing or a speech by a politician, and the way they allude to it is not so much as to say, as so-and-so said, but just using a phrase. And if that phrase is well-known, if that phrase has uh, resonance with some key discussion that's going on, people who are... Uh, in tune with the speaker, recognize immediately what they're saying. I know what he's talking about there. He's used a phrase that is, I know where he stands on the issue. You know, he's just said something that, uh, he said that deliberately. I know he said it deliberately. Uh, he's making a point there. Now, that we, we accept that in everyday speech. When the Lord Jesus Christ uh, speaks, or the Apostle Paul through the Spirit speaks, they use language which resonates with earlier prophets. And that is used interchangeably in our normal discourse with Bible echoes. Is that right? Everybody knows, uses the phrase Bible echo, especially in the seminars. Uh, Learn to read the Bible. That's where Bible echoes became currency, didn't it? We should bear in mind, though, that there is a difference between those two concepts in uh, scholarship, shall we say. Right? And the difference is that they tend to think of this as non-deliberate, whereas this is deliberate. So an author may actually be echoing earlier writers without even realizing it, because they've been brought up in a culture. They, you, you know, people in Texas will use uh, vocabulary, uh, y'all will use a vocabulary that is instinctive to you, but needs to be translated in Wales. <laughs> or, or there are concepts that you include that, uh, I don't know what that means, but you all know what it means. Uh, you're not... You're not uh, maybe consciously making a connection between this and that, but it's just there. It's come into the language. the same with us. There are no non-deliberate links in Scripture, are there? Because it's the Word of God. We can't say that Isaiah, uh, the, the prophet of Isaiah, didn't realize it. <laughs> But the language of Deuteronomy is coming through Isaiah. Right. So when you see these links, sometimes if we're not really clear about verbal inspiration, people say, yeah, yes, but Isaiah wouldn't have understood that link, would he? 
It can't be a true link because how would Isaiah have known that? Right? Or we'll say when the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians and he makes many allusions or Bible echoes to Old Testament scripture, I'll show you some. We might say, I don't think that can be right. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul, it's far too complicated for the Apostle Paul to have thought that. How could he have written that? Well, he wasn't writing on his own, was he? And then we might say, ah, yes, but the Ephesians, they, they were like us. They wouldn't have understood that. Well, why wouldn't they have understood it, if we can understand it? And that's not the limitation anyway, if it's the Word of God. The Word of God is written for all generations. Maybe that generation wouldn't have understood some of those things. As we may not be understanding things that are there because they're not immediately apparent for our generation. So I tried to define terms, and I really think that Bible echoes is a, is a wonderful term if what we mean is a deliberate pointer between passages of Scripture that we are intended to hear because it's the mind of God revealed. Whereas a quotation is a more substantial package of, uh, of Scripture that is reproduced in another place, sometimes with... Uh, modification. But I'm sure everybody's come across a situation where the brother has made a link and we say, hmm, I can't see it myself. You know, he said, ah, oh, do you know, you know, the Apostle Paul is thinking about at this place, he's thinking about, no, I think you're stretching a point, I think that's more imagination. And of course, it could be imagination, and we could be stretching it, and we could be forcing it. And so we always have to reflect on, as we did with the patterns, is that a pattern in my head rather than a pattern in the text? Is this connection of thought more a very general link, or is it a very strong link? If we get the links correct, it's like... Uh, it's like electricity, you know. When you connect up these two passages, you go, <laughs> you know, it, it, really, it really works. You think, oh, yeah, I see that. So we have to test out whether it's imagination or whether it's real. So I want us to think about that as we're looking at it. Um, so can you... Uh, look at uh, Colossians. Some reason. Okay. Can you look at Colossians chapter 1, please? There's no doubt that Colossians is echoing the book of Genesis. I don't think anybody will disagree with that. It's, it's very, very strong. Um, we have there numerous references to the creation account. Verse 16 of chapter 1, for example, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth. Right? Backing up to verse 15, Who is the image of the invisible God. So man was created in the image of God. 
God created all things. The question comes up, well, is that the actual creation that the Apostle Paul is speaking about, or is it the new creation? I, I think it's the new creation. He's not saying Jesus created the heavens and the earth, is he? He's saying that the new creation, the spiritual creation, uh, that, that's what's been spoken of. If you look at verse 18, you're going to have echoes of Old Testament scripture. Verse 18 says that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the ecclesia, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So you see there the word beginning, who is the beginning. What's that an echo of? It's an easy one, isn't it? It's the first word of the Bible. It's one of my favorite examples of, uh, of Bible echoes. So if you take this, that the Apostle Paul takes us to the first word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says that the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning. The beginning of God's creation. But he's not talking about the literal creation of heaven and earth. He's talking about the spiritual creation of heaven and earth. So the echo isn't to be taken as literally you've got to transpose exactly what that Genesis 1 verse 1 was and say that's what it is now. There's a subtlety about that link. There's a type which is being drawn by that link. That link is saying, just as God created the heavens and the earth, so now he is creating a, a new people, a new heavens, a new earth. He's creating a new person, a new man. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the second Adam. So that link is just the one word which goes back to Genesis, but we interpret that link as a, the fulfillment of a type, so that when God created in the beginning, he wasn't just speaking about the immediate creation of heaven and earth, he was actually signaling a pattern, a spiritual pattern, that the physical, natural, included a spiritual pattern of things to come, just as the tabernacle was a pattern of things to come. So the, so the creation is a pattern of things to come. Now, we understand that just by two, one word being linked between these two passages. But then we go a little bit further and we say, okay, this word in the beginning, this word in the beginning, if you look it up in the concordance, Strong's number 7225, Reshith. And it tells you that it's from the same root as 7218, the word Rosh. And I'm told that Rosh is the masculine and Reshith is the feminine. So you've got a masculine and feminine uh, pair of words. And Rosh is the ordinary word for head. Sometimes we think it's the proper name, uh, you know, Rosh, king of Meshach. But this word reshith is translated beginning 18 times, first roots 11 times, first 9 times, chief 8 times, miscellaneously 5 times. 
not uncommon, 51 times this word is used, or 51 verses where this word is used, and it's got those aspects to it. So a Hebrew word isn't necessarily uh, meaning just what one English word means. Right? So you say, well, what, what, word, what English word is best to capture the meaning of reshith? Well, it all depends. It depends what we're talking about. It depends what the context is. This, this Hebrew word is almost multi-purpose. <laughs> How do you unravel that? Well, I, I put, if you look up all those 51 passages, I think you come to this conclusion, that the word reshith is the word which means first. Now, that can be first in time as in the beginning. It can mean first of a generation or first of a harvest. It's the firstborn or the first fruit. It's the first sheaf. It's the first child. Or it can mean first in importance. The head, the chief, the top man. Right? So that's pretty straightforward. That's what we do when we do a word study. We'd look up those, that word reshith. The opening phrase is barashith. Is that right? Barashith. So that, that's what it would be. And then that, you look at the concordance and it says, okay, the word reshith is the word. Uh, what's it mean? Turn up those passages. Might take us a while. Come to the conclusion. Uh, so put simply in, in Latin English, it means the first in time or generation of importance. So now come back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and what do you see? you see a most amazing thing. This is what you see. He is the head. The beginning. The firstborn. That he might have the preeminence. That's amazing, isn't it? That that one Hebrew word, the feminine of the masculine word for head, <laughs> has three principal uses. Beginning, firstborn, or preeminent. And each of those words, including the masculine equivalent, finds its place in one verse in the New Testament speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, to me, that is that's, that's mind-bogglingly amazing. The first word of the Bible has its full meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get past the first word without realizing that God's purpose is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness, that one word, which has three, you could say, four applications, because it's the feminine of head, <laughs> right? and that it, it, it talks about first in time, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is the beginning of the creation of God. It means first of a generation. Yeah, he's the firstborn from the dead. It means first in importance. Yes, he is the preeminent one.
one, one is lost for words to describe the wonder of God's word there. You know, we think, oh, somebody says, oh, no, just, just like you're reading too much into it. It just means beginning, you know, it's just the beginning. Never say just <laughs> in that sense. Because the Apostle Paul, when he comes to talk about the new creation, he says, let me tell you what that word resheth really stands for. It stands for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. The female is us. He is the masculine. We are the female. Male and female, he made them. And if we are in him, then we're part of that new creation of whom he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstfruits. He is the, he's the wave offering, the sheaf of barley at Passover that was waved. He is the first of the harvest. Then there's another firstborn set, of course, which is the firstborn of the wheat harvest at Pentecost. That's us. And then... It's quite clear that God has elevated him. He is unique. He is the head. He has the preeminence over all things. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. All of that was packaged in that first word of the Bible. Well, we would never have known that. We could never have made that up. Right? But is it our imagination isn't that what the Apostle Paul is exposing? He is revealing. So these links are to be dwelt on, reflected on, pondered on, because they, they open our understanding to what God is uh, working on. So just going like that, you come, just to summarize, that there are three different Greek words to explain one Hebrew word. One Hebrew word has at least three ideas in it. As we said, first, born, beginning, preeminence. Right? At least three. And so three different Greek words. Arche, the beginning. Prototos, firstborn. Proteo, preeminence. Three different Greek words to explain the richness of one Hebrew word. Absolutely. So th those words come into English. But the Hebrew word, right? The Hebrew word has those different aspects within it. So that will be helpful because when we find that, say, a, a quotation in the New Testament is not exactly the same as we've read in the Old Testament, there are differences. Think, well, actually... Did he get it wrong? Uh, is he quoting a different source? What's going on here? It may be this is a clue that that Old Testament passage has packed into it a whole uh, set of, of levels of, of meaning. It's been likened to a, a house built on three stories. You know, the house is being referred to, but actually it's the ground floor aspect of the house that's been drawn out or it's the second floor aspect of the house that's been drawn out or it's you know the, the top floor that's been drawn out in the New Testament 
And that's not cheating in any sense because that Hebrew concept is so rich that there are aspects that could be emphasized and expanded and elaborated on when that passage comes to be used. So Bible is interpreting itself. God is interpreting his word if we'll only listen to it. Let's test this out then. Let's go to John chapter 1. We've been reading the Gospel of John, so I thought I'd take uh, examples and perhaps workshop examples from the epistle, uh, from the Gospel of John as so fresh in our minds. We can take other examples as well, but I'd like to just go to the opening 18 verses of John chapter 1. And I think yesterday we would all agree that there's a natural break between verses 18 and 19. At verse 19 is the start of the record of John the Baptist's ministry, whereas chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, known as the prologue, is a summation, really, of what the intent of the whole gospel is about. When you set that out, this was the first time I ever consciously came across the idea of chiastic structure. This is where I started. You know, I was reading about, I was wondering what, uh, how to answer the, the Greek challenge, you know, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. What does the, what does the original Greek say? Uh, how would I answer somebody who knew uh, the Greek language and said to me, oh, no, the Greek says, you know, Jesus is part of the Trinity. And I said, well, I don't know Greek, so how do I answer that? I had that experience, I had that experience back in Cardiff where uh, a new ecclesia was uh, formed out of Cardiff, Cardiff Museum Place, the ecclesia is called, and it was 120 strong, so 20 people went off and set up another ecclesia in, in the suburbs, and the um, mm. evangelical church down the road took exception to us being in their neighborhood. And they placarded the neighborhood. Beware the cults. Right? Uh, and you can find that I am a leader of a cult. You find that on the web. It's still available. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I wasn't the leader of this ecclesia. I didn't, I didn't even belong to this ecclesia. But uh, these guys were giving out leaflets against us and trying to tell the neighbors not to come to our talks. So the brethren there said, well, I give them well, I do a talk on Christadelphians are not a cult. So that was the title of the talk, Christadelphians are not a cult. Right? And it was in the hall, and there were 10 visitors <laughs> glowering at me, you know, and uh, fiercely glowering. And when I finished the talk, I, I, I knew where they came from. So I, I talked about the Trinity, right? And I said, you know, that the Trinity is not in the Bible. I said, you call us a cult because we don't believe the Trinity. The Trinity is not in the Bible. I, I said, and you know that it's a development of 400 years of controversy. I put up all these quotations of the Catholic writers and Church of England writers saying, don't bother looking in the Bible for the Trinity. It's not there. Now, Catholic bishops admitting it's not there. Church of England archbishops saying, don't bother looking, it's not there. It's a development. So I, 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 I really labored that point, and I, I pressed and pressed it to the point they were getting redder and redder in the face. Uh, and then they, uh, uh, when I finished, they came up. 
ten of them, right round me like this. And they said, first question they said, can you read Greek? That was the first thing they said to me, can you read Greek? And they had John chapter 1 open, and they were going to have me on the Greek. I can't read Greek. You know? So I said, do I need to read Greek to be saved? <laughs> and, uh, uh, that took them aback a while, but that's what they wanted to trap me on the Greek. So I just, uh, a lot. Anyway, just tell you as a matter of interest what they did. They secretly taped my talk. They wrote out a transcript of it. They, uh, they put their comments in, sarcastic comments in. Uh, and, you know, things like, is that so, Stephen? Right? And, and so they got, got and, and they, they sent it to my neighbors. So they sent this 20-page document to my neighbors using their first names. So they found out where I lived. They found out who my neighbors were. They found out the names of my neighbors, their first names. And they wrote personal letters, but they didn't sign it. They were anonymous letters to my name. Dear Elaine and Alan. The funny thing was that Elaine and Alan next door had moved away. Alan had been unemployed for a long while. But he found a job up in the Midlands. So 150 miles away. And he was employed by a Christadelphian. <laughs> and they rang up and said, we've had this letter forwarded on to us um, against Christadelphians. We're outraged. <laughs> and I've, I've rung them up to tell them what I think of them. <laughs> so completely backfired. Completely backfired. I went to my next door neighbor up the other way, and I said... Uh, have you had anything about cults? Yes, he said. I put it straight in the bin. <laughs> he was a Mormon. <laughs> and then the other third neighbor next door but one was driving up the road. And I said, ah, you know, just tell me, have you had anything about the cults? And she said, no. She said, I had something about Christadelphians. But you're not a cult, are you? <laughs> so it completely backfired. But they've put on the web, and it was a long time ago, but it's still there, you know, about uh, uh, what I said and picking me up and, you know, probably I made some mistakes uh, from, from memory and uh, picking me up on that and, tr and really trying to claim that we're a cult. Anyway, that was a story just to explain. I was looking up uh, what the Greek expert said about John chapter 1 because I you know, just wanted to see whether they still thought it was Trinitarian, non-Trinitarian, you know, the different ways of looking at the Greek. And I came across this. I came across versions of this chiastic structure of the prologue of John. What is that about? And that's why I started to, to read it and look at it. And it was a, an eye-opener for me because I realized that if it was just left to me, I would not have chosen that center. If you said to me, what's the key verse in the prologue of John? I would have said, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you, would you have picked that yourself? When you look at the sequence of thought, it isn't the center. And 
you know, it takes a while to work out if this is right or not, but you at least can see in this structure that it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Greek is, literally, and what God was, the Word was. Actually, the Greek is quite helpful. It's not teaching. Of course, it's not teaching Trinitarian ideas. What it's saying is that the Word was the mind of God. What God was, the Word was. The Word was the expression of the mind of God. Scripture is God's breath, God's spirit, God's, God's thinking expressed. The Word is God's mind. Right? The Word is God's thinking. That's what it's saying. In the beginning, there was God's mind and his purpose, which he expressed in words in Scripture, and that became reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice, though, that John the Baptist is mentioned in two different places. He's mentioned in verses 6 to 8. He's also mentioned in verse 15. So we've got a clue. John the Baptist is in two separate places in what is a short section of Scripture. We might say, well, why don't you put all the John Baptist bits together? <laughs> say them in one place, otherwise it'll confuse people. But this symmetrically designed structure is drawing us towards a central point. And the central point is this. That we can become the children of God if we believe on his name. He came to his own, you see, and his own didn't believe him. They didn't know him. They knew him not. Why? Because they're thinking after the flesh. Right? They didn't see his glory. Well, how could they see glory? There was no beauty in him that we should desire him, says Isaiah. What they saw was a man older than his years, a man who was a carpenter from Nazareth. They couldn't see his character. Consequently, they didn't receive him. But if we will receive him, what does that mean? If we will believe on his name, he gives us authority to become the children of God. It, it's an amazing thing. I see, is that what John's gospel is? I'd rather it not be about us, we might think, and quite rightly, ought it not to be about God manifestation? But that's what it is about. It is about God manifestation in us. And that's where Nicodemus comes in. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, the, the chief rabbi of the Sanhedrin, the man who encapsulates Judaism. Jesus says, you do not know what I'm talking about. You're the cleverest man in the Sanhedrin, and you don't know what I'm talking about. Why? Because you are thinking of the flesh, which were born not of flesh, but of God. Eh? I think then that's where it comes from, doesn't it? Because if you look at chapter, if you just look at the passage in, in, in your scriptures, you, you'll see there, you know, we've obviously picked out a phrase to put it on the screen. But if you look at what it is encapsulating, it is, it is immense, you see. Verse 12, say verses 12 and 13 are the center. Not just, it's not just pick out a phrase, but the concept is this. 
As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We have to be born of God. What does John keep telling us? Who is your father? You are of your father, the devil. We be not born of fornication. Abram is our father. That's a natural descent. They boasted themselves that they were born of Abram naturally. And John is trying to say, that gives you no credentials to get into the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to be born of God to be in the kingdom of God. You know, Nicodemus, you've got perfect credentials. You have not got a passport into the kingdom of God. You don't know what I'm talking about. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. What a man to say that to. I mean, you could say that to the Samaritan woman, and she might say, well, you're right. <laughs> but to say that to Nicodemus, to say that everything you esteem so highly in terms of your natural descent, your qualifications, your training, your heritage, you know, everything that you are, is not what it takes to be in the kingdom of God, that you have to have a new way of thinking born from above. If you want to be the children of God, that is a stunning thing, isn't it? That's, I think, why this is, this is correct, because when you go through, uh, you know, early chapters of John, you come to chapter 3, and you come to this confrontation between those who represent being born of the flesh. You think, oh, that's a negative thing. Yes. No, no, but it's Abram's flesh we're talking about. You know, no, no, it's still flesh. Yeah, still flesh. Ah, yes, but, but we're Jews. Yes, born of the will of man. And you see the point that's being made there. And the epistle draws this out, you know, this struggle between flesh and spirit, between the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. We have to be born. Why was... It that God intervened in uh, the life of the patriarchs. Why was it that he shut up the wombs of the women of the patriarchs? So that they shouldn't think it was of natural descent. So they should know that it was of God's intervention. That you have to be born from above. That's right, isn't it? So that, that's what John, uh, this, this prologue is really trying to emphasize for us. And what we have to do, we have to receive Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it's explained. We have to believe on his name. There are different versions of this. You can draw it up in different ways, you know. And it's a good thing to do. Draw it up yourself. See what you think it means. You know, separate it out as you think it is asking us to separate it out. Don't accept what somebody else tells you. It's not, can't, somebody else can't say, oh, this is the definitive one. There's nothing in the Greek which says you have to divide it up any particular way. Remember that the original Greek was a string of letters, not even uh, with word divisions. We have to decide how the meaning comes to us by listening to it and allowing it to interpret itself. And once you've got that, it sets us on a course to look through the Gospel of John and, and follow that principle as it unfolds. But my point wasn't to put that up as structure. That was yesterday. <laughs> How many 
echoes of Old Testament scripture can you hear in that passage? Anybody got any marked up? How many back references? Uh, there's an obvious one in verse 1. In the beginning. Reference, Genesis 1 verse 1. So that, that's clearly one. Can you see any others? Yep. Okay. Right. Uh, when it says that uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, that word is tented or tabernacled. So you think of you know the Shekinah glory uh, dwelling in the in the tabernacle, Peter. Uh, I'm putting this one out. Uh, yeah. Ah, right, excellent. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's a good one. So uh, it's a Proverbs 8, perhaps. Uh, so when it talks about being with God in the beginning, then wisdom is personified as a woman who was with God in the beginning. And that's a very useful passage to help explain to people who believe in the pre-existence of Christ, as a Trinitarian would, to point out that you know, the word may be spoken of as a person, in this case, in Proverbs, as a woman who was with God in the beginning. That's, that's quite helpful. I, I believe in the actual Greek that um, whereas the English translation uh, speaks as word as a person, it uses it in the neutral, but it's not, not in a personification. Right. Just a word. Okay. A person not personified. Okay. Right. What about Exodus 34? That's probably, you've got that in your margins, haven't you? Exodus 34 from verse 60, verse 14 of John 1. Right? Who has not got that in their margin? <laughs> if you haven't, then it's, it's one for putting in because it's a real classic. Verse 14 of John 1. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that, that phrase, full of grace and truth, is it a quotation? Is it an allusion? Is it an echo? It's a quotation. It's actually quite a substantial phrase, and it is a lifted out of Exodus chapter 34, and verse 6, when you go back to Exodus 34, verse 6, what you see, uh, this is where Moses is in the cleft in the rock and the glory of God passes by him. He's not allowed to see God. He's not allowed to see the glory of God except the afterglow as it passes by. And even then his face shines when he comes down the mountain. What happens is that he hears Yahweh proclaim the name. So verse 6 of Exodus 34, Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh El, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. But you've got to get behind the English. Now the word abundant, if you look it up in the corner, just means full. Or put another way, the word full in the Greek means abundant. Right? So full and abundant, they're equivalent. Right? 
What about, but it doesn't say grace and truth. It says goodness and truth. What happens if you look up the word goodness? What's the Hebrew word? Anybody know that? Kesed. It's the word kesed. It's the word loving kindness. And that is the equivalent of grace. So you could do that word study and you follow it back and forth between New and Old Testament and you can see that God's loving kindness, God's grace, it's the word in verse 7, mercy. Keep in mercy for thousands. It's God's gracious, loving kindness to us. So abundant in goodness and truth is an exact equivalent of full of grace and truth. So what, is, what are we being told? We're being told that the name of God, the name which represents God's character, is manifested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. My point is this, you'll know that. How many other echoes of this passage might you now find when you realize that this is an intentional link? This is not just John. You know, John was familiar with all of this. John grew up in Sunday school. John knew his Old Testament scriptures. John, when he writes his you know, just uses his normal vocabulary and concepts and this is how it comes out. No, no, John's writing by the Holy Spirit given unto him. Right? And John is, is revealing to us scripture. Let me show you then. You come back to Exodus 33 and see the context. Moses is being told that he's God's friend. God says to him, verse 11, Yahweh speak to Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto a friend. And Moses, you know, takes this and says in verse 12, he says, Yahweh, see, thou sayest unto me, bring up this people. Thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee. Does that ring any echoes in John chapter 1? Show me now thy way that I may know thee. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. See what's happening? This people prided themselves in being disciples of Moses. John chapter 1 verse 17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth is Exodus chapter 34. And it's about Moses. And Moses says, show me that I may know you. And John chapter 1 says, and God showed them. And they didn't know him. Oh, what else happens? Look what Moses says. In verse 13 of chapter 33, he says, If I have found grace, show me now thy way that I may know thee. 
that I might find grace. What's going on here? He says, if I've already found grace, show me that I might find more grace. Echo in John 1, verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Have you ever wondered what that means? Grace for grace? It's not obvious, is it? Grace for grace. But the context is of Moses. Moses has been told by God, you have found grace in my sight. Moses says, can I have some more? Can I grow in grace? Can I go further? Will you show me who you are? Will you tell me what you're like? Can I get to know you? That would be a gracious thing. So Moses goes on to say, in verse 18 of chapter 33, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And John chapter 1 says, and we beheld his glory. Isn't that amazing? So if I put it up like this, look. you will see the richness of the echoes, the allusions, back to Exodus 33, 34. In that wonderful passage of Scripture, the prologue of the Gospel record of John, taking us back to Genesis as a type of the new creation, taking us back to wisdom as the embodiment of the mind of God, taking us to Israel in the wilderness, yeah, the tabernacle, yes, Moses, yes. It takes us right back to the time when Moses says, I want to know God. I want to see his glory. And God says to Moses, I'll tell you my glory. You'll hear my glory. You can't see my glory. No man can see God and live. No man can see me and live. John 1 verse 18, no man hath seen God. The only begotten Son has declared him, declared him. God proclaimed his name. But this is the point. What Moses asks for, Jesus answers. Moses asked to see God's glory. He didn't see it really. He heard the glory of God's character revealed. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory was seen. We could see goodness and truth walking through Galilee, teaching, helping, healing. We see the character of the Father. There's this woman being dragged in front of him in chapter 8 to embarrass him to humiliate him. We see how he handled that situation. How, how he understood exactly what to do. He that is without sin cast the first stone. And that was exactly the thing to send those men away. And then he's left with this, this wretched poor girl. And he says, there's no man condemn thee, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Grace and truth. It's, you know, it was seen. It was just stunningly seen. 
Um, people who were of a fleshly way of thinking couldn't see it. They saw failure. They saw a man give up on his career opportunity, a man invested with power. He could have cast off the Roman yoke and made himself king. And what did he do? He gave himself over to the authorities. What was the point of that? I may as well make some money out of this. 30 pieces of silver, that's as much as I can get. They didn't know who he was. But we have to know who he is. We have to receive him. We have to be born of that way of thinking. We have to be born from above. We have to let the word of God create in us a new perspective, a new way of thinking. Give us a heart to feel as God wants us to feel. To break through that hardened shell of, of human nature and implant a word in us which is growing and will flower and will help us to be changed, to be like him. That's what John is trying to tell us. You know, we've got to know who he is. He's full of grace and truth. And they're not opposites, are they? They can't be opposites because they, they are the, in the one person. So what the gospel record of John done is giving us the point. <laughs> What's the point of this gospel? What are we trying? Yes, we learn lots of things. Some of those things we learn from Matthew and from Mark and from Luke. It's the same Jesus. But there is a point with this gospel. And that's to make us children of God. And all the religiousness of the, of the Jewish nation was not in tune with this. He's not trying to make us religious. He's not trying to make us, you know, get to meeting on time. Follow a format. He's trying to get us to be different people from that which we are when we're born. He wants us to be born from above. That's the point. And these echoes, and we, obviously we set them out in a table. And I know people get tabled out. <laughs> oh, not another table. But you understand what lies behind us, just trying to show the correspondence. And look at all that correspondence. And you might think, you know, if I'd said to you, uh, oh, look, the word declared and the word proclaimed, there's a Bible echo there. If I just, without referencing any of these other passages, just link those two together, you'd say, well, you're making too much out of that. It's, it's uh, just because declared and proclaimed sound similar ideas, you know, what, what, what do you make out of that? But it's not like that, is it? It is a whole set of very specific cross-references. Can anybody doubt that full of grace and truth is an intended echo of Exodus 34, verse 6? I don't think anybody here would, would doubt that. Then you start looking and you find that there's a set of these things which is bringing, uh, integrating that Moses. And it's not just saying, just as Moses. What it's saying is, as Moses asked, but did not get an answer, show me thy glory, we've got the answer. Why? Because the law came through Moses. But what God wants us to see is grace and truth in real life. I 
blown over by it, really. It's just amazing. Focus more then on that central part, and there are other clear echoes, don't you think? So, for example, those that believe on his name. Well, Exodus chapter 3, God's name. What if they won't believe? You know, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? What's your name? He says, my name is this. Tell them, I will be hath sent me. What if they won't believe? Well, that was the whole point about Israel. They wouldn't believe in the name of God. But we have to believe. And why, why, is, why is that a problem? They prided themselves of being born of blood. They prided themselves of being born of flesh, of the will of man. But God had spoken through the patriarchs all along that it was not of the will of man. So if you really were children of Abraham, says Jesus to them, you would do the works of Abraham. You would be of faith. That's what you have to do. So in the center of this is a contrast in some ways, similarities between Moses and the patriarchs. And as you go through the gospel record of John, there's Moses and there are the patriarchs marching through the gospel record in comparison and in contrast going all the way through. Let me just give you one uh, more, uh, one or two more. Moving on in John's Gospel record, here's a section from verse 19 to verse 25. Why is that a section? Well, the people are asking him, who art thou? And then they asked him and said, so why are you baptizing them? They asked him, are you the Christ? Are you Elias? Are you that prophet? And they said, well, if you're not Christ, if you're not Elias, if you're not that prophet, why are you baptizing? You see the repetition, right? You see the envelope structure here. That reference to Christ, Elias, prophet, Christ, Elias, prophet. Definite parallel. The logic is continuing. Are you the Christ? No. Well, if you're not, why are you baptizing? Are you Elijah? No. So why are you baptizing? Are you the prophet that Moses spoke of? No. Why are you baptizing then? You know, what's going on? If you're none of those three, what's going on? And the answer, they said to him, who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? They which were sent were of the Pharisees. So there's an explanation. Them that sent us, they which were sent. Circles around an Old Testament quotation. quotation. So often that is the case, that the heart, the center, is the quotation. That's the, one of the beauties of it. That's how, you know, these quotations are not there thrown in <laughs> just for color or thrown in to pad out <laughs> as we might do if we were doing a talk and we didn't have enough material so we threw in some extra long quotations just to make sure we don't finish too soon. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. What what these quotations are? These quotations are the point. In other words, this section of John's Gospel is expounding for us what Elijah, what uh, what Isaiah was speaking about. So that's neat, isn't it? So when you go back then to where's this from? 
Where's it from? Where's the quote? Come on, everybody knows this. Isaiah chapter 40. You go back and go back to Isaiah 40 and you look at the language of Isaiah 40 and you see it comes flooding into John chapter 1. By accident? Obviously not by accident. Look, there's the quotation. And what does Isaiah say is going to come along the highway? The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, says Isaiah. And John says, we beheld the glory. So this isn't just a comparison with Moses. It's also the fulfillment of a prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 4 says, and all flesh shall see it. And, and John says, yeah, that was the light that shone. All flesh did see it, but they didn't recognize it. All flesh. The word was made flesh. The word of our God shall stand forever. Now, that's really interesting in Gospel record of John, this reference here. Because knowing that that's important, Moses says that I might know him. The world knew him not. You go back to Isaiah and you go look for the word know. You know, where else will I find this? And look what it says. It's a challenge. Have ye not known? To whom will you liken God? It's ironic, isn't it? Don't you know? That's what he's like. Jesus of Nazareth. That's what God is like. Jesus says, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So just understanding this bit, and that this quote isn't just put in there because, well, Matthew and Mark did as well, and Luke did as well. We'll, we'll put it in, you know. It's actually trying to say, if that's the central point, maybe the context of that quotation is going to open up for us our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's making the same points as Exodus 33, 34, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, in flesh, the glory of God was revealed that in seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, we are beholding the character of our Father. And that's what we've got to get to know. But flesh can't know it. Flesh can't answer the question, what is he like? It makes idols of wood and stone. That's what, that's what we naturally make God like. But John is saying, no. The Lord Jesus Christ is what he's like, full of grace and truth. Ties in also the next phrase in verse 21, Isaiah 40, has it not been told you from the beginning? Ah. <laughs> yeah, from the beginning. It's terrific, isn't it? Eh? From the beginning. Yeah, that, that is great. That is great. And we know that from the beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> was there in that first word. Now that's a great example um, of uh, looking closely then. Given that, in a sense, we've been told to go, that the spirit word is saying to us, you don't carry on without, go back to Isaiah chapter 40, and you look at that passage, and you think about that passage, and you study that passage, and you get the point eventually. Right? It's not just there because 
somebody thought it was a good idea. Or, or somebody might say, do you know, John loves Isaiah. You know, he, he, he quotes it all the time. It was his favorite book. Sorry, that's not why it's there. Maybe it was his favorite book. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. You know. Uh, it's there because it, it holds power for us in our understanding. And if we were to study Isaiah 40, this would open up Isaiah 40 for us. Now we've got an understanding of what Isaiah 40 is about. It's about God's purpose from the beginning, manifesting his name in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, that word beginning is something I enjoy going back and looking carefully at and seeing how it fits in. Right, so we've, we've filled the time now with just a couple of examples. And what I was trying to illustrate, something that you know, and something which actually Christadelphians do instinctively, and it's a very sound approach to Bible study, which is to link passages together by the common use of words and phrases. All I'm trying to say is just think about what that means, what we're talking about, either a quotation or an allusion or Bible echo, whatever you want to call it, that word beginning is an echo uh, you know, it's a prophecy in a sense. If you started with Isaiah, if you look at if you look at uh, John, it's an echo not just of Genesis one, but it's an echo of Isaiah forty, and Isaiah forty is an echo of John one. You know, the, uh, uh, sorry, an echo of Genesis one. So you get these two passages tied together by uh, an electric circuit, and, and when we get it right, the current will flow. And it will light up our understanding of what's going on. But what we have to realize now is that if you see one connection, if it's, if it's true, there's likely to be many more. And part of the digging for treasure is comparing, 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 comparing. And, oh, I never saw that one. Oh, look at that. And that excitement drives us on. That excitement is part of the wonder of Bible study, where your dad runs upstairs and says, look what I found. You know, it's, it's just, and somebody else says, oh, what are you so excited about? You know, who's won the football match? No, no, I found a word connecting two passages. Why is that exciting? Oh, because it, it's wonderful. It's just opened up my understanding of, of the word of God. And the exhortational point is banged home, isn't it? This is born of the Spirit, born from above. That's what we've got to be, these new sort of people. Who are excited by God's Word. That would be sort of one of the definitions, wouldn't it, of, of being born of God, that His Word is a delight. Isn't that what the psalmist says? A delight to us. It's what we love to do. So what I want to do uh, in our breakout session, after uh, this coffee break, comfort break, is to I'll give you a passage of scripture, I'll give you a, a cross-reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is a, a reference to the prophecy of Jeremiah. We're told, you know, as is written, uh, and see what you make of that reference. Okay, so that would, be, that would be the first task. If you have more than one link, if you have two, three, four, five, six links of these words you think there's something here yeah, this is not just my imagination this is this is definite that's why i'm keen we should search for other connections between the context because that's going to make us convinced 
Uh, and then if you find that the contexts are linked, if you find that the passage in Jeremiah 9 is very pertinent, uh, not just the phrase that's quoted, but the whole passage is pertinent. You get an understanding of why that would be, and it makes sense. It makes sense in the end. So what did you think then of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Verse 31, according as it is written. There's the signpost. This is a quotation. It's not an exact quotation, is it? He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. It doesn't actually say that in Jeremiah. It says, let him that glorieth glory in this. So instead of this, the Apostle Paul says, the Lord. Well, that you think, oh, that's nothing. Well, actually, it is something. So we'd have to come back to that. So the link is really between Jeremiah 9 verse 23 to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. Yeah. Not just the connection between verse 24 and 31. Right. Yeah, okay. What is happening here is something remarkable, uh, really exciting. Which, and Did anybody not find that, that link? Right? I think, you know, we can give each other confidence that we're on the right line, can't we, by independently looking at it. And now we may not all have the same level of certainty. Uh, some, some say, well, you know, maybe, do you think that's possible? Somebody else says, oh, definitely. But by discussing that, we come to a, a conclusion. I'm not saying a consensus. We come into a conclusion that uh, what Peter uh, and that group discovered that there are three categories. You just have to go back a verse and say there's three sorts of people. And then you think, oh, Paul talks about three sorts of people. Um, and he's gone, he's gone right back to chapter 9, verse 12, where it says, who is the wise man? Because we're primed to think about that phrase, wise man, because that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about. And it sort of echoes what the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? You know, who is the wise man? Where is he? Right. So it looks like the apostle, through the wisdom given unto him, is talking about Jeremiah 9, almost at the end of his connections, not at the beginning. It's almost like he said, well, don't you know where I am? <laughs> I'm in Jeremiah, of course I am. You know, didn't, you know have a look. <laughs> It's almost as if the scripture are expecting us to have picked up these references. And you'd get there because if you said, uh, the Apostle Paul has challenged them on their respect, their undue respect for worldly wisdom. Now, where in scripture do we get exhortation about warning against following the wise of this world? Where would you go? Well, you'd get your concordance out. You'd look at the wise. You'd look at the past. You'd come to Jeremiah. You'd come to Isaiah. And you'd say, uh, you might say, I wonder if that's what the apostle is getting to. And then eventually you find it's definite. Did anybody go further back than chapter 9, verse 12? And that, that vanity just get picked up, doesn't it? If you go even further back to verse 8 of chapter 8, all right? There's a challenge there. This links up with something we said uh, for yesterday, isn't it? Verse eight, How do you say we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us? 
Now look what the margin of the AV says. The false pen of the scribes worketh falsehood. Cliff asked us a question, you know, why would God allow people to tamper with the text of Scripture? But here's a case where they were, because it looks like the, the scribes were falsifying the word of God. They were, they were either paraphrasing it or they were leaving bits out they didn't like or they adding bits in that they wanted to be in there. And the way that they were answered, it's interesting that God didn't just allow them to do that without correction because it was the discovery of the true law at this time which caused them to be ashamed because they were caught out. When Hilkiah went into the house of God and they found the copy of the book of the law, remember Jeremiah says, Thy word was found, and I did eat it, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. It looks like they found the original. If you look at the Chronicles record, it says, The book of the law by the hand of Moses. It looks like they found the original, like us you know, knowing about the Dead Sea Scrolls. People said, ah, how do you know that uh, the received text is, is accurate? Ah, we just found one a thousand years earlier, <laughs> and it's accurate. Here, it looks like the wise men are ashamed and dismayed, though they have rejected the word of Yahweh. People have been found out, and there is no wisdom in them. So you could even start further back in chapter 8 and say, that the whole section of Jeremiah is about the corruption of Scripture, yeah, the producing of, say, the Good News Bible, <laughs> sneaking in some wrong doctrines, right? and the people are being led astray. And Jeremiah has been called to, to challenge them, uh, to um, get them to realize that it doesn't matter whether you're wise, whether you're mighty, or whether you're, you're rich. Does, those aren't what... what God is asking us to glory in. What we're asked to glory in is something else. So what happens then is the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit, picks all that up. And he says, you are glorying in... So you go to Corinthians chapter 1, verse, verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse 20, and that Nathan's pointed out is from Isaiah 29. Then verse 20 is Jeremiah. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Why does he say scribe there? Because Jeremiah chapter 8 is talking about the scribes who were falsifying the word of God. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the wise of the Greeks and the scribes of the Jews. The Judaizers who were really you know, talking about tradition as more than anything else, weren't they? Where is the disputer of this world, the, the debater, the, the guy who is confident, who will stand up the front, who will take people on, who will try to humiliate us, you know, who will say, can you speak Greek? What do you know? You know, I can speak, I can read Greek. I, you know nothing, you Christadelphians. You haven't been to theological seminaries. You just, you know, why, why should you put any confidence in, in your learning? Well, we're not putting confidence in our learning. We're reading the word of God. That's what we're putting confidence in. We believe we're reading it for ourselves could lead us to understand it. And that's why there's so few Christadelphians, because we haven't got the Holy Spirit to help us in the way that evangelicals have. Because that's not the true spirit. What, what is moving them in their revivalist meetings is not the true spirit. Yeah. That confidence you just told me yeah. is 
That's right. In your wisdom of the flesh, but not glory in your wisdom that you you may be mighty, you may be wise, you may be rich, but you put confidence in that and not me, and not in the understanding and knowledge of me, what Yahweh say to, to all of us, then what you're doing is you're emphasizing the lust of the flesh by the mighty man, which ranges from gender, sex, up to dominating militarily. Yeah. And you're putting confidence in your wisdom, which is the pride of life, which dominates in the Nobel Prizes that are offered right. to men today. And you're putting confidence in your riches when you can have everything from mansions down to cars down to vacations that everybody looks at with the eyes to measure your success rate. And, and to do that, what you're, what you're doing is, is, what God is telling them is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. The only way you know the will of God is by the knowledge and understanding of the Lord. So, I think, Stan, uh, what he's just said now is really uh, helpful, important because you know when you look at these categories, you say, well, why, why those three? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life—that's all that is in the world, right? And as we were saying earlier, now, if you think of ambition, a young person goes off to college, university, uh, what, what's the world going to offer them? One of three things, fame, fortune, and power. That's what the world's going to offer. Right? Um, of course, we've got to get a job. Uh, it's nice to have a, uh, an income. You know, it's good to be able to afford health insurance. You know, okay, we, we, we have to make our way in life, right? But... If we put our heart on these things, the apostle says, why were there many in Corinth? That uh, Paul didn't want to stay in Corinth, but the Lord says to him, stay there. I got many, many disciples here. Why? Because they weren't the sort of people who were so satisfied with their lives that they didn't need the gospel. These were people who were, were poor, who needed help, who needed advice. So there weren't many wise opposite of that. There weren't many mighty opposite of that. There weren't many noble, that is, the rich men. There weren't many. So then you see the three things are set against three things are set against three things. You get this threefold repetition that the thought pattern of one verse in Jeremiah 9 sets the structure for the letter. He's taken those three and he's commenting on them one by one. And he goes back again and comments on them. God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things and base things as God chosen. So you see how it's, the, the, the letter is actually set out in that way. But there's a change. But that's, that's, that. The change is this. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't put it on the slide. What is the Lord equivalent to in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31? What is the Lord equivalent to? Because the quotation says... 
Let in the glorious, glory in. Glory in. So if you go back to that one, the Lord is equivalent to this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am Yahweh, which exercised loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's who the Lord is. To see the equation, the Lord equals, the Lord Jesus Christ equals understanding and knowing the character of Yahweh who exercises kesed, loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. And Paul even says that just before right. that there's uh, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Right. So he even, even draws attention to be the Lord Jesus Christ being that. So do you see what he's saying? By just saying the Lord... He said, now, be careful, you don't think this is just like him there, <laughs> right? Or the one we knew. Realize that what I'm talking about is Jesus, the Son of God, full of grace and truth, manifest in the character of the Father, and who will come to establish righteousness and justice in the earth. That's who the Lord is. See, when you look at uh, chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 2, He's, he's anticipating the argument that he's going to use by the wisdom giving unto him to counter this growing wrong way of thinking amongst the Corinthians who were admiring worldly characteristics. They admired people with university degrees, uh, uh, especially if they were you know, Greek orators. Uh, they admired people who had prestige. They admired people who had wealth, you know. And these Judaizers seem to have been of that sort, you know. They followed Paul. He was a crumpled up old man, you know, struggling to get around the place. When he stood up on the platform, people squinted at him, you know. His bodily presence was weak. His speech was contemptible. He didn't cut a fine figure. He wasn't, he wasn't the man we would have chosen to go and represent us on the great stages of life. He was a humble man. Yeah, he probably spoke with a strong Jewish accent. His beatings, he had terrible beatings. Over the course of only 10 years, he was whipped and beaten with rods and shipwrecked. And, and you know, and you can imagine his back was been scarred and... Those scars would have shrunk and he couldn't, wouldn't be able to stand up. His ribs would have been broken with a beating with rods. His head was caved in. They took him up for dead after they, he'd been stoned. I mean, this man uh, was really uh, beaten around. And you can imagine the scars on him, you know, and he's trying to stand up there and he's trying to tell them uh, that they shouldn't glory in man. What a wonderful person to present that point <laughs> he was a pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ there's no beauty in him that we should desire him surely we wouldn't be taken in by externalities like that surely we would want to look on the true person on the real teaching that was that's the chance and especially in an age and what's the age we live in you know it's it's an age of uh, project yourself yeah you know, put put your best face out there uh, you know, uh, 
It's all about showing yourself in the best light. Well, the Apostle Paul wasn't into that. I don't think he would have taken many selfies, do you? Uh, you know. <laughs> he was... Uh, and the Corinthians, surely they wouldn't take it. But, but what he's trying to say is, when we say that, now look at verse 2, this is what it says, unto the ecclesia of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. What's going to bind them together? What's going to overcome their worldly way of thinking? What's going to make them not contentious, not fractious, not schismatic? What's going to make the difference is they realize that we are all under one Lord. And this isn't just a named person. This is the way that we can understand and know Yahweh and see his character and come under his righteous rulership in the kingdom of God on earth. That's what we're talking about. Put everything in perspective. Yeah? It's not a competition between who can speak the best Greek. <laughs> and that, that's something, an exhortation for us, isn't it? That we all need to realize that. And, you know, when we get together as just as brethren, schools of the prophets, of course, are partly about helping us think through how to share studies in the future, how to give better talks or whatever. It's not a competition. It's not about showing ourselves off. It's not about presenting ourselves. It's not about our personality coming across. If, if that's what we think it is, then just get off the platform. We're in the wrong place. But isn't that emulation all talk about relation? That's right. That. Yeah. And like the fast draw kid yeah. was taught yeah. by the older, wiser yeah. fast gun who only used it when he had to. Yeah. The young fast gun comes up and says, I'll take you out. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, I, I think, look, it is absolutely possible to have the wrong motives for. Um, for sharing the word of God. But look, we're trying to share understanding and knowing, aren't we? And that's that's what our role is. Josh? Uh, yeah, going along with that passage, like in Jeremiah earlier, Jeremiah 9, verse 6, he says, Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. Uh, it's, it's right. this, deceit is the imagination okay. of the okay. heart, right. which right. goes on in from chapter 17. Right. Right. The heart is deceitful above all. Right. Uh, uh, okay. And so, yeah. and so it's kind of Paul is saying that too in the Corinthians that we want to know God yeah. through these things. Yeah. And it, it pleases God for the, the foolishness yeah. to, to preach through that foolishness and these foolishness to the world. Yeah. 
and, you know, and, and we will appear foolish to people. They will ridicule us. You know, they, they will call us names. They will belittle us. And in some ways, you know, we welcome it because it, it puts us in the right category, doesn't it? If it was the other way around, things wouldn't be going the right way. That, that to me is very impressive because uh, it, it just shows how, how critical it is to go backwards in those links and to uh, almost get more definition by going backwards. Yeah. That whole phrase, the Lord, in First Corinthians chapter 1, verse yeah. 1, you follow it back, it actually mushrooms into all of verse 24. Right. Um, back in Jeremiah, and that's, that's yeah. really impressive. Jeremiah's kind of fleshed it out a little bit more. Yeah. Saul is Paul is just and the other thing that uh, I think Paul was just pointing out is the chapter divisions again are unhelpful and if you if you go forward you'll come across another quotation uh, which actually has to do with all that we've been talking about which is from Isaiah again so obviously there's a richness there you know, we look, we're looking at a little frame of this tapestry, and if we open up the frame, we'll see more and more. Look, I'm very happy that we've uh, done that, and I'm very, very happy about the discussion. Uh, I'm very uh, content that, uh, that everybody is uh, on the same wavelength, and I'm sure... We don't think we're making this up. It's really there, isn't it? We, we co we're confident. Even if, somebody, even if someone expert came along and says, no, the Apostle Paul couldn't have been quoting from Jeremiah because, you know, the Jeremiah we have is not the Jeremiah. You know, and they, they tell us a whole pack of stories about it. We'd say, no, yeah, I can see it. You know, you can't, I can't deny what's there. I don't care what your degrees are in. I don't care how much expertise you have. I can see this. And we have a confidence. It's not an arrogance. It's a confidence in the word of God. We, I see the evidence of my own eyes here. I can hear the message. The criteria are satisfied. So, somewhere, didn't I say somewhere? Yeah, the criteria are satisfied with those links. Uh, we've got all of those points. When we look at Jeremiah, we've got shared language, not just in the verse quoted, but in uh, going way back and forwards. We've got, and it's specific, it's about three people, three sorts of people, the wise, the powerful, and the rich. Right? And those links, they're not just in passing. They are deep, they are structural, they're, they are the way the whole letter's framed. And we've discussed that. The context is absolutely appropriate. And the whole thing makes sense. And that's where we get our confidence from. Not because we've read it in a book, because, but because we have looked at this and we have searched it out ourselves and we have uh, got a feeling now for it. And I'm sure, you know, as you, as you read other passages, you think, oh, I wonder if that's linked. I wonder if that's linked. We've got a feeling for it. We've got our own sort of yardstick about whether this is right or not. And when we realize that's the way the New Testament is written, with the Old Testament scriptures in mind, that we are intended to look at the whole of scripture, not just this bit of the New Testament. We're supposed to bring that in 
it enriches us.